Let me begin before we pray with this. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, then God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent us a savior. A man is climbing up a mountain at the top of which he hopes to find God. But by ascending the heights, the seeker expects to leave all of the cares and miseries of life behind him in the valley. While he climbs, God is coming down the mountain into the toil and the grief. In the mists of the mountain, God and the man pass one another. When the man reaches the mountaintop, he will find nothing. God is not there. What then will he do? He knows the climbing was a mistake. But in agony of that recognition, will he fall down in despair or will he turn to retrace his path through the mists into the valley where God has gone seeking him? Let's pray. Lord, the truth of Christmas is the incarnation where God in the form of man came into this valley, the valley of despair, toil, and grief, endured that, and then conquered that. But you are here seeking human beings because you love us all so deeply. And the proof of that is the fact that we're still, still celebrating the Incarnation, the coming of the Messiah who came for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the village inn, not this village inn. That night, some shepherds were in the fields outside the village guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. The radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terribly frightened, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news of great joy for everyone. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born tonight in Bethlehem, the city of David. And this is how you will recognize him. You will find a baby lying in a manger wrapped snugly in strips of cloth. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to all whom God favors. The shepherds didn't ask God if he was sure that he knew what he was doing. Had the angel gone to the theologians, they would have first consulted their commentaries. Had he gone to the elite, they would have looked around to see if anyone else was watching. Had he gone to the successful, they would have first looked at their calendars. And so he went to shepherds, men who didn't have a reputation to protect or an axe to grind or a ladder to climb. Men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and that messiahs aren't found wrapped in rags sleeping in a feeding trough. 
A.B. Phillips wrote a story, a fictional story, of a senior angel showing a very young angel the splendors of the universe. Here's part of it. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning slowly in its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one in particular, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's so special about that one? He listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this, this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? I do, and I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For, strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them and to lift them up to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. Since 2,000 years ago, Jesus has gotten less press, and Santa, of course, has gotten a lot more press every Christmas season, it seems. Somebody emailed this to me not long ago, some facts about Santa Claus. Number one, no known species of reindeer can fly, but there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified, and while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely rule out flying reindeer, which only Santa has ever seen. Fact number two, there are two billion children in the world, persons under 18, but since Santa doesn't at least appear to handle Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children, that reduces the workload by 85% of the total, leaving 378 million, according to the Population Reference Bureau. At an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes. One presumes that there is at least one good child per house. Fact number three, Santa has 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth, assuming that he travels east to west, which seems logical. This works out to 822.6 visits per second. That is to say that for each Household with good children, Santa has one one-thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stocking, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left over, get back in the chimney, get back into the sleigh, and move on to the next house. 
Assuming that each one of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the Earth, which of course we know to be false, but for the purpose of our calculations we will accept, we are now talking about 0.78 miles per household, a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting stops to do what most of us do at least once every 31 hours, plus feeding, etc. That means that Santa's sleigh is moving at 650 miles per second, 3,000 times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses Space Probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. A conventional reindeer can run at tops 25 to 30 miles per hour. Fact number four, the payload on the sleigh adds another interesting element. <laughs> Assuming each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons, not counting Santa, <clears throat> who is invariably described as overweight. On land, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Even granting the flying reindeer can pull ten times that normal amount. We cannot do the job with eight or even nine. No, we need 214,200 reindeer. <laughs> this increases the payload, not even counting the weight of the sleigh, to 353,430 tons. Again, for comparison, this is four times the weight of the HMS Queen Elizabeth. Fact number five, 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance. This will heat the reindeer up in the same fashion as spacecrafts re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The lead pair of reindeer will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each, in short, they will burst into flames almost instantaneously, <laughs> exposing the reindeer behind them and creating a deafening sonic boom in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandth of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subject to centrifugal forces of 17,500.06 times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa, which seems ludicrously slim, would be pinched to the back of the sleigh by a 4,315,015-pound force. In conclusion, if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he's now dead. Some of you aren't clapping at that, which makes me wonder a little bit about you. It's amazing that we can put Santa up anywhere, and yet people, after talking about Santa Claus for years, will go, you know, I have real trouble believing that Bible story about Jesus being born. Yeah? Usually at Christmas time, we focus on shepherds, angels singing, the, the Christmas story is told to us in Luke. Further on in the same book, there is the continuation of the story, the baby has been born. 
But we see Christmas not from the perspective of shepherds, nor angels, nor Joseph and Mary, as much as an interesting individual known as Simeon in the New Testament, who is standing in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem the day Joseph and Mary bring the baby Jesus and to bring an offering for the firstborn. He's there, and he knows something is up as soon as they walk in. Listen to this part of the Christmas story. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Typically, Simon is pictured in most Christians' mind as someone who is very old. Tradition says that he was 113 years old when this story comes about. It is merely tradition. There's nothing to substantiate that whatsoever in the Scripture. We don't really know how old he was. We just know that God said he wouldn't die before he saw the promised Messiah. We do know that he was a devout Jewish male who worked somehow, worshipped in the temple. He was part of the faithful remnant that was waiting for what they call here the consolation of Israel, which means the coming of their Messiah. A typical traditional Jewish prayer was, may I see the consolation of Israel. It was a messianic expectation. Now, the New Testament says he was waiting for the Christ, and the Holy Spirit said that he wouldn't die till he had seen the Lord's Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah, God's deliverer, anointed one. The term originally means to rub or to smear. Oil was poured on prophets and priests and kings, smeared on them in the Old Testament, designating them for service. And so this coming designated one, Whoever he was, whoever he would be, whatever he would do, that's the one Simeon, along with others, was waiting for. And so Joseph and Mary come in, bring the child Jesus over to him, and this man picks up Jesus and says something to this couple. It's a prayer to the Lord, but in the, in the hearing of Joseph and Mary, must have just blown their minds. Now just think of what they've gone through already. An angel appeared to her, she's a young teenager, and to Joseph, saying that she's pregnant, though she has had no sexual relations with any person. That's enough to bewilder anyone. Then they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem on a donkey because the Roman Empire is taking a census of the whole world at the time. Have a baby out in a feeding trough outside of the inn. Now they come to Jerusalem to do what is customary according to the law, And they hear this guy say this about the baby. Very insightful what Simeon shared about Jesus, and I think we should look at it being Christmas. 
First of all, fact number one, this baby was salvation. Interesting how he says it. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, said Simeon, according to your word, the promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation. So, you now wait a minute. He saw a baby. Why didn't he say, for my eyes have seen this baby, but he calls this baby your salvation? Because there's a beautiful truth in that. Salvation is not a set of teachings. It's not a code of ethics. It's not a mantra for meditation. Salvation is a person named Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself, when he would grow up, said that. He never said, follow my teachings. He said, follow me. He didn't say, my teachings, my wonderful code of ethics are the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible doesn't say as many as received His code of ethics will become children of God, but as many as received Him, because salvation is a person. Now, what did Simeon and others mean when they used the word salvation? In fact, a whole lot of people bristle at that word that Christians use. What do you mean salvation? That, that implies we need to be rescued from something. Exactly. What do we need salvation from? What do we need to be rescued from? Why do we need a deliverer? You know the answer to that. That's the dark side of Christmas. That's the ugly part of Christmas. It's called sin. Isn't that what the angel said? Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from what? Their sin. That is the ugly side of Christmas. That's why Christmas needed to come in the first place. It's because of the sinfulness of man, both by nature and by choice. And to remedy that, salvation, a rescuer, a deliverer would come. That's why the angels announced to the shepherds, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. Not just a wonderful teacher, an example for all to follow, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The name Jesus means God is salvation. That was his mission. The baby then was salvation. In many of our homes, we have manger settings, the little baby in the crib. And this is typically the time to think of that. But if we think a little deeper and look at those hands and think of those feet and think of that little head, we understand what it's all about. Those cute little hands reaching up in space would one day have Roman spikes driven through them. Those little infant feet kicking away would walk up a dusty hill called Golgotha with a cross attached. That cute little infant head would one day wear a crown of thorns. And that was all part of the plan. You see, there is no salvation in Jesus' birth, none whatsoever. As miraculous as that is, there is no salvation in his birth. There is no salvation in his teachings. There is no salvation in his code of ethics. There is salvation in his substitutionary death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. That's where the salvation would lie. 
because he would be the substitute for our sins. And of course, after Jesus was born and the wise men from the east came and brought gifts, even the gifts prophesied that, didn't they? There was gold, that makes sense, that's for a king. There was frankincense, that makes sense. Priests used that. Jesus was a king, he was a priest. But myrrh, that's odd because myrrh, though it was an aromatic resin that gave off a beautiful scent, it was primarily used in the East as an embalming fluid. That'd be kind of strange as a gift, would it not? A jar of formaldehyde. Have you ever given a gift that just bombs? This would be it 2,000 years ago. It's like, what, are you playing a joke on me? What is this? Formaldehyde, myrrh. But that was prophetic of his mission of salvation. For after Jesus died, they buried him and they wrapped around him cloth that was mixed with myrrh and aloes. Spoke of his purpose for coming. So the baby was salvation. Second fact, the baby was planned. Notice what Simeon said. You're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Christmas didn't start in Bethlehem. Christmas started thousands of years, eons before, in the mind and heart of God. In fact, in the garden when our forefathers fell, God had a plan right there. He announced it, that someone would come as the deliverer. So it was all planned. The prophets foretold it. For instance, one prophet only, Isaiah the prophet, foretold that the Christ would be born to a virgin, that he would be God and man in the same person, that he would die a horrible death, the death of a criminal, but that he would one day reign over all the earth. That prophet Isaiah, 600 years before Bethlehem, said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there shall be no end. All of that in one fell swoop. Several years ago, there was a book that was published by an unbelieving uh, man, Hugh Schoenfield, and uh, he called it The Passover Plot. Some of you may have seen it, even read the book. The premise is, is that Jesus orchestrated all of these events. It was all a plot just to make people think that he was the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. So he arranged his life. He arranged the Passover. He arranged his death. It was all a plot. Actually, Schoenfield's premise is correct. It was a plot. But it wasn't a plot that Jesus just came up with spur of the moment. It was a plot thousands of years before God was plotting how to save men. And that plotting included his son coming, foretold by the prophets, to save men and women from their sins. So Simeon was waiting for the Messiah. He knew the scriptures predicted it. And at the time Simeon was in the temple... There was, not only with him, but with several others, a heightened expectation that the Messiah would come at any moment. And it was growing as a universal expectation. Here's one source, a Jewish source, written by a rabbi, Silver, in his book, The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. 
He says, quote, prior to the first century of the Christian era, the messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, which is the time of Jesus, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. When Jesus came into Galilee, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, he was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. The Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century in the Christian era. And he came. And when he came, Simeon said, he's here. And predicted, acknowledged, this baby is salvation. This baby was talked about and planned long ago. Third fact, Simeon knew this baby was for everyone, not just him, not just the Jews, not just people in the temple, everyone. He said, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. How unusual for a Jewish gentleman 2,000 years ago in the Jewish temple to announce that this baby was come for salvation planned long ago that would extend far beyond the borders of Israel and would encompass the whole world. All peoples, he says. But that's exactly what the angels said to the shepherds out in Bethlehem. The good news, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be for a few people. Most people, all people. And for all people is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. For all people. Sometimes people will say, I've even, I've even heard it uh, when I go overseas on different missions trips. Oh, you Christians have no right to bring your Western religion and impose your Western religion on people in different cultures. Western religion? It started on the West Bank in Israel. It started in Israel, in the Orient, technically. And Jesus, when he grew up, made this command, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And Luke said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So he's not just for a select few people who live in the western part of the world. He's for all people everywhere, which means practically he's for you. He came for your sins. He came to be the center of your life, of your existence. He came to give you, give you a new start. Simeon said that he is a light, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This baby, what a prediction, would come and enlighten the world. What does that imply? It implies that the world has to be dark so that you'll notice the light. You don't bring a flashlight out in the middle of a sunny day, do you? You wait till it's dark. You can't see in the darkness. The light dispels the darkness. Jesus Christ was God's flashlight sent into this world to show people the path himself. Now, 
had you been able to go to Herod's palace and interview him, and let's say with this philosophy you ask the question, excuse me, Herod, I have a very important question to ask you, but would you say the Gentile world at large is in darkness? He would say, what? The Gentile world is the Roman world, and we Romans have brought light to the world economically, politically. If you were to go to Athens, Greece, to the great philosophers and say, excuse me, would you say your world is in the depth of darkness? They would say, are you kidding? We Greeks brought light to the world. Why, the great philosophers, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, and many others. We've enlightened you ignorant people. If you were to go to the Jewish nation and say, is the world in darkness? They'd say, well, I agree with part of your statement. The Gentile world is in darkness. They did believe that. But we have the light of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribal laws. We're not in darkness. They are, but we're not. And you know what? If you went to people today and asked people today about their world, would they say it's in darkness? They'd say, oh, no. Many years ago in the Dark Ages... Yes, but nowadays we're, we're so enlightened, we've evolved so much further. So many advancements in medicine and technology. We can see out into outer space. We have computers. We have Starbucks coffee. We have everything. We're enlightened people. But Simeon was right. You see, there is a shroud of spiritual darkness over people's hearts who don't know God. And Jesus came as God's light to show people out of darkness. In fact, he said, I am the light of the world. And ever since he's been shining, people don't like the light. And wherever you go, if you decide to take Jesus out of the church and talk about him at business or in your family gatherings or at sporting events, you get the same reaction that people get when you try to turn a bright light on them when they've grown accustomed to the darkness by sleep. Get rid of that light. And of course, that's what the world's trying to do. Every Christmas, they call it Xmas. Merry Xmas. Happy Holidays. Leave Christ out of Christmas. All indicative of turning out the light. But Simeon said he would. Fourth and finally... Simeon turns now to Mary and Joseph standing there. Their jaws are probably way, way down to their chest at this point. Did not expect what he just said. And he tells them that basically this baby will be controversial. That's the fourth fact. Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel for a sign which will be spoken against. What a prediction. What a prediction. And he was so loved and so hated all at the same time. When he lived, when he preached, when he did what he did in Israel, the common people followed him, loved him. At the same time, the spiritual elite, many political figures hated him and wanted to see him killed. In fact, they slandered his virgin birth in John chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 12, they said his miracles were done by the power of the devil. 
In Matthew 27, they slandered his death, and in the same chapter, they lied about his resurrection. The fall and the rising of many in Israel, a sign which will be spoken against. And do you know, the name of Jesus still brings a mixed reaction today. If I say Jesus in this crowd, you go, yeah. But try saying his name in a secular environment. Go into a crowded room sometime. This would be an interesting experiment. As people are just mulling around, they're talking, the din of conversation. Say the name Jesus Christ so the people in the room can hear it and just watch the reaction. It'll be very interesting. First of all, I think people will think you just swore unfortunately. And isn't that interesting in and of itself that the name of Jesus Christ is used as a term of mockery, not just in America, but all over the world in different languages I have found his name still is used in derision. Why? Interesting, isn't it? I've never heard someone say, oh, oh, Buddha. (laughs) It's always Jesus. That should be some kind of an indication to us that there's spiritual warfare going on. I think that the peak of bigotry is to talk against somebody you've never met. They'll use Jesus' name, God's name, like like it's it's a term of derision, and they'll scorn him and mock him, but they've never met him. They don't know him. Anybody who would talk that way about anybody they've never met has got to be a true bigot. So his name is greatly hated, but at the same time, he's greatly loved. After 2,000 years, millions of people still celebrate his birth around the world. If a prince is born in a country, the nation will make a celebration of his birth, but after 2,000 years, the whole world, not every person, but you can virtually go almost anywhere in the world And you'll see the celebration of Christmas. A few years ago, I was in Baghdad, Iraq, the last place you'd think you'd have a celebration of Christmas. I saw nativity sets in public places all over the city of Baghdad in a Muslim country. But many people were celebrating them and putting out nativity sets publicly. You can't even do that in America. I suppose if the ACLU ever makes it to Baghdad, they won't be able to do it there either. But for the time being, they're able to. Well, that's Christmas, and Christmas is just the beginning. Because what Simeon said, for it to be fulfilled, requires a second coming. He hasn't become a light for all the Gentiles yet. He hasn't shown Israel ultimate glory like it's promised that he will one day. For him to fulfill what is predicted by Simeon and by angels and by prophets, he has to come again. The same prophet who said, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and that's usually where the Christmas card stops. The prophet also said this, the government will be upon his shoulder, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. That requires a second trip. He came once to deal with sin. That's out of the way. I don't know if it's out of the way in all of your lives, but that's what he came for. But he'll come again to fix what sinful man has messed up in this earth. That's total redemption. 
So the first coming is a prelude to the second coming. It's a preview of coming attractions, you might say. There's a woman who bought Christmas presents for everybody except a small group of women in her women's group. She planned to do it. You know, the Christmas rush, you get busy, you lose time. She was unable to buy gifts a couple days before Christmas, so she says, at least I'll get them a Christmas card. So she rushes to the store, and by that time, a couple days before Christmas, all the cards are picked over. But she sees some cards that appear to be beautiful, gold foil, floral arrangements like a wreath around the front. She says, beautiful. Now, she doesn't stop to read the inside of the card. She just buys the box and signs with all my love and sends her friends the card. She knew they were Christmas cards, but she didn't read the inside. She thought, doesn't matter. Well, New Year's rolls around. A couple days after the New Year, she has a couple of those cards still sitting there. She didn't use them all, so she just opened one up. And she was stunned when she found that it read, this Christmas card is just to say a little gift is on the way. Oops. Sent the card, no gift. Jesus' first coming Christmas is just to say that Jesus Christ is on the way. He's promised to come again. And as wonderful as Christmas is, I don't want to just look backwards. I want to look forward to the time when he'll rule and reign. That baby didn't stay a baby. He grew up and demanded obedience from us and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Invited people to come to him. Died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God and said, I'll be back. I know Arnold Schwarzenegger said that, but <laughs> Jesus will do it. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful time of year. It's wonderful in the sense that even people who don't acknowledge God or Jesus Christ will allow these worship songs that we call Christmas carols to be sung publicly. Lord, I pray that the words of those Christmas carols would burn deep into the conscience of every man and woman singing them this season. They speak of your love. They were written by people who loved you. And tonight we consider on this Christmas Eve the wonder of God visiting this tiny little speck of dust floating in a galaxy of billions of others, stars. We think of David's words, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? But you did, and we're recipients of that visit and that love. And some of us tonight, in fact most of us I would say, understand what that abiding peace is all about. We've experienced it. We experience it right now. We're not looking for Christmas under a tree. We found it in our heart. You gave the greatest gift. You wrapped up your son in skin and put him in a barn and shepherds looked at him and angels wondered. 
and we tonight still wonder. And now, Lord, it's time for us to give you a Christmas present. For many of us, it's just our praise, our worship. For others, it's what you've always wanted from us all along, but we've just never given it to you, and that's us. We've never given you us, our lives. We've never made the declaration, take over my life, God. You made me anyway. You created me. Now I give my life to you. Redeem me. Save me from my sin. Own me. And I pray, Lord, that tonight on this Christmas Eve, that we would consider where we are in relationship to you. And those who don't know you, honestly, would give their lives to you tonight. As we continue to pray, just search your heart right now. Some of you have acknowledged that there is a God. You believe that. You haven't given that God a name. You think that it's probably hard to know exactly who He is or what that's all about, but you're here tonight. And in the heart of hearts, you'd like to know that God. You'd love to answer the question, why I'm here? Why am I here on this earth? Or others of you have gone to church and it's been church to you. It's never been a personal relationship with God. It's a Christmas thing or an Easter thing or a special event thing, but that's it. Still others of you remember walking once with the Lord Jesus Christ. You've left Him so long ago for other things that have choked that seed of the Gospel out of your life. Tonight is your night to give God the present He's always wanted. You can't give Him gold. He's God. He doesn't want your money. He's God. He wants you, your heart. And if you're not sure that you've ever given Him your heart, would you do that tonight? That's what He wants. That's what Christmas is all about. He gave you His best, His Son. Would you give Him tonight your heart? Would you say yes to Jesus Christ? Invite Him in as your Savior, personally, honestly. If you want to do that, would you raise your hand up right now? It's so I can acknowledge you, and I'll pray for you as we close the service. In fact, we'll all pray for you. Just raise your hand up. You're acknowledging, I need Jesus, and I'm going to give Him my life right now. Just slip it up and say, pray for me. Lord bless you, to my right, on the side. Anyone else? Raise it up high so I can see it. Right up in the front. Anyone else? Off to the side. In the back. A few of you in the back. In the middle on the side. God doesn't say, I want your money, and I want you to go to church, and I want you to do this and do that, and then I'll save you if I'm having a good day. What He says is you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get it. You just have to receive it. I've already done the work. I sent my son. He's the only one that could pay the price. But if you receive him, I'll declare you righteous because of him, not because of you. That's a great deal.
anybody else. He'll never force himself on you. You have to want him and you have to receive him. Anybody at all. Way in the back. See your hands. God bless you guys. Father, we thank you this evening for this, the greatest part of it all. Christmas again, as the angel announced. Jesus come to save people from their sins. Oh, we know that it's our sins that put you on a cross, that brought you into this world. And we're so thankful and we're so honored that you loved us that much to go through with it. We pray for everyone in here, Lord, but especially now those who have raised their hands and have indicated, I need this God. I need to know the forgiveness of this Jesus. Lord, I pray that a peace would enter their lives right now that would settle in among them during this Christmas time. The peace of being right with you as they give their lives to you. Wherever you are sitting or standing tonight, if you raised your hand, would you right where you are, talk to God right now. Say, Lord, I give you my life. Take it, all of it. I know I'm a sinner. And I'm so thankful that you died. You sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. Forgive me. I turn to you. I'm willing to turn from my sin and everything that displeases you and follow you as your disciple. In Jesus' name, amen.